Well, this morning, we turn to the final account in the book of Judges. We've been going through this for some time now. We're in Judges chapter 19 this morning, and the title of this morning's sermon is The Guilt of Benjamin, Part 1. The Guilt of Benjamin, Part 1. This is the account of the Levite and his concubine and a destructive civil war that erupts within Israel. These events, historically speaking, actually occurred quite early in the Judges' period, even though they come at the end of our book of Judges. As I spoke about last week, these accounts are, are not necessarily chronological in Judges. They're more theological. They're arranged theologically more than uh, chronologically. And that's, that's difficult for us as modern Westerners. We expect what we read to be laid out in chronological order. And it's just not so uh, always with the Bible. We know this happened probably earlier in the period of the Judges because in the next chapter, chapter 20, we're going to read uh, just a really short, you know, uh, factoid, really, that Phineas is the high priest at the time of these occurrences. Well, Phineas is a grandson of Aaron, who was the first high priest of Israel, as you may recall. So these events then would have been occurring um, during the, the third generation from the Exodus, which would have been the second generation of Israelites to actually live within the Promised Land, the land uh, of Canaan. And to be quite honest with you, I have to admit that I have not been looking forward to preaching this part of Judges. It's a, it's a difficult and dark tale. It's quite complicated. It's three chapters long. It's the second longest account, apart from Samson's, in the book of Judges. And it's passages like this, accounts like this, that make me realize the importance and the need for verse-by-verse expository preaching. Otherwise, preachers would just pass by these sorts of things because they're really difficult and, uh, to deal with on many different levels. And, you know, if we had our way, most preachers would just preach really happy sermons and we wouldn't deal with these things that God has placed before us for a reason. These accounts are in his word because there is important messages in them that we must uh, look to. Interestingly, um, my wife Karen has really been looking forward to hearing me preach this. <laughs> is we read, through, like many of you do, through the Bible, cover to cover, yearly. And when we get to this account in Judges, we usually discuss it. And Karen has questions that we talk about. And usually she'll, she'll say, um, well, you know, it still doesn't really make sense to me. And so when I was telling her, when, you know, I'm really not looking forward to this account. And she says, I'm really looking forward to it because I want to hear you explain it. So I don't know about the rest of you, but let's, uh, let's see how we can, how we can figure um, this out. Maybe you've already uh, dealt with it and you have a good grasp. If not, Stand by, we're going we're gonna, to uh, tackle this. It's going to take a while because, like I said, it's three chapters long and there's a lot that we must cover um, in it. And my goal as we go through this is 
to have it make sense to you if, if it doesn't. <clears throat> well, as we start off in chapter 19, the writer of Judges immediately gives us a clue about what we will encounter. Right away, we have the familiar refrain in the first part of verse 1, chapter 19, in those days when there was no king in Israel. So the writer's preface of this new narrative with his no king formula alerts us to what we're going to encounter. It's going to be a tale of chaos, sin, and confusion. We see that after each of these or before each of these no king refrains that the writer uses. But really, we might ask, how bad can it be? We've read about some pretty bad things already. We've read about disobedience, apostasy, idolatry, lack of leadership, timid leadership, usurpation of leadership, selfishness, fratricide, brother killing brother, and theft. So how much worse can it get? By now, anyone reading or listening to to judges would be thinking there's got to be a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Surely things are going to get better. Maybe there's a sudden turn of events for the, for the, the, the better that allows everyone to live happily ever after. Well, there is, but it's much later. It's in the New Testament sequel when our Lord arrives. But for now, we're about to enter a mess of moral chaos as Israel enters into a state of complete ethical collapse, propelled by sin from a very personal level, very much like sin spread to all mankind by an individual act in the Garden of Eden, we're going to see the ripple effects, the infectiousness of sin. We start off with a very seemingly simple case of domestic unhappiness. A man treats his spouse poorly and she leaves him. Then things escalate when he goes after her to bring her home. So we have this mistreatment in the most basic of human relationships between a husband and a wife. This is the original, the very first relationship established between human beings in the created orders, between husband and wife. And what happens here is an example of what happened in the garden. It's like repeated. It puts a crack in the social order, which gets widened and then busted open through inhospitality, a violent mob intent on sodomy, rape, murder, kidnapping, then finally the utter chaos of a civil war. What looks at first like nothing more than a personal crisis in a private household escalates into first a citywide problem, then becomes a problem for an entire nation, and ultimately jeopardizes the integrity of the entire nation of Israel itself. This brings us really quickly to the first point I want to make, point number one. Marriage is the key to our social order. Marriage is the key to our social order. Marriage is foundational to God's organizational plan for humans. He has designed us to live together socially from the smallest, most basic element of one man and one woman in marriage, 
which is designed to produce children and form a family out of which are built the larger elements of society. So what we need to realize, I think, here is our commitment to marriage, both on a personal and cultural level, is a sign of our commitment to the Lord God. I think we can also look at it as a sign of society's recognition of God, the God of the Bible. Now, obviously, not everyone is joined in marriage in a physical sense. We recognize that. God recognizes that because the New Testament speaks about some who are given the gift of singleness so they may devote themselves to God's kingdom. So singleness can be very important. With this new account that we're coming up on here of the Levite and his concubine, I don't want you to miss how things go wrong from the very start. With this man and woman, although the final story here, like I said, takes three chapters to tell, with this man and woman, there's many themes in this account. Some are starkly apparent. You'll see them right away. Others are more subtle. And the initial issue is not only easy to miss, but it can quickly get lost in the confusing and chaotic events that are to come. However, marriage is not or should be our primary concern, even though it's the first point I make, because it builds on something. Our main concern, our primary role, is as image bearers of God and as his adopted children, those of us that are in Christ. It's our relationship to the Creator, the Lord God, that is our first duty, and everything flows out of that. Yet the fact that human marriage plays into this gives us insight into its importance. And this is obvious, especially in the New Testament, when we see the the use of human marriage as a metaphor for our relationship with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We corporately, as his church, are referred to as his bride, while he is called the bridegroom. And the gospel accounts, the epistles, the revelation at the end of the New Testament contain each of the many references to marriage as metaphors, as parables, as illustrations of our relationship to the Lord and to our coming life with him, our coming life everlasting. From the very beginning, in the, in the book of Genesis, Genesis 2, verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Then Paul, in the New Testament, takes this and makes a spiritual corollary out of it in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, where Paul explains that he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See the joining in both of these. We have a physical joining in our human relationships, and we have a spiritual joining with our Lord through this metaphor of marriage, which... As a man, I have to, I think I've mentioned this before, I, I had problems with that once upon a time because it's like, man, I, I'm, I, I don't understand being a bride. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man, I'm not a, I'm not a woman. I, I've never read Modern Bride. I've never had a bride's book where I put ideas in it as I was growing up. I, I just never did that. But as a husband, as a man, brothers, I'm speaking to you here from experience. If, if we think in the way that the the word explains it to us in this metaphor 
and we think about how we treat our wives and we, we, we switch that and it's like, if, if my Lord was to treat me as I've treated my wife, how would I feel about that? If my Lord talked to me in the ways that I have talked to my wife, how would I feel about that? How, how, what would that do to me? Putting yourself in that place as a man changes, I think, your perception of marriage and what Jesus has called us to be and to do. Just a thought. In the same sense of what we're talking about, if we consider the last chapters of Judges, we should look around and consider the world and the state it is in from the perspective of marriage as foundational, as the most basic of human relationships given to us and established by the Lord God between one man and one woman. Society worldwide pretty much except for a few exceptions, pretty much worldwide has dynamited this concept. They've blown it apart and made it into what God has called an abomination. The the strongest, the harshest language that the Lord God can use for a sin is an abomination. Do we not see the same unraveling and destruction of society occurring as we are going to see in this last account in Judges. This is why I think this account is important to us, as the whole book of Judges is, which isn't a fun book to read. It's not a fun book to preach. But it speaks to the human condition during our time, during all times, as much as at the time of the original historical events. So the plot in this final story is very complex, and the account is long. And that by the time we get to the end of Judges, the the roots of the problem may have been forgotten. So I want to try something a a little bit different. I I didn't come up with this on my own. I don't generally come up with really good ideas on my own. I generally borrow really good ideas from someone else. The bad ideas are generally mine. But this comes from the commentary on Judges by uh, Dr. Daniel Block to give the complete picture of what happens He suggests starting at the end of the work and moving forward or moving backward, as the case may be, in a quick summary of the story. So I'm going to read this backward summary. Won't take long. We're not going to spend, we're not getting into details, but I want you to form a mental picture as we do this. We're going to go from the macro, the wide angle shot. And as we go backwards, we're going to focus in till we get to the micro, the, the, the close-up. And, and try to note the significance of each individual episode. Pay attention to the links between cause and effect, both within and across the, the episodes. So let's begin at the end. Remember, we're journeying backwards to the beginning of the story. So at the end, 200 Benjamite men capture 200 female dancers at Shiloh and take them as their wives because the elders of Israel gave them permission to do so. Next, the elders of Israel gave the 200 men permission to capture the 200 young women because Jabesh Gilead could not provide enough wives for the 600 men, all that remained of the tribe of Benjamin. Next, Jabesh Gilead could provide only 400 wives 
for the Benjamites because that is all the virgins the Israelites found for the remnant of 600 Benjamite men among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. Then the Israelites went to Jabesh Gilead to get wives for the Benjamites because they felt sorry for them. Why did they feel sorry for them? The Israelites felt sorry for the Benjamites because they had reduced the tribe of Benjamin to 600 men in a series of fierce battles in a civil war. Prior to that, the Israelites had engaged Benjamin in battle because the Benjamites had refused to deliver into their hands the inhabitants of Gibeah. Why did they want the inhabitants of Gibeah? The Israelites had demanded the deliverance of Gibeah into their hands because of the Levites' testimony concerning their conduct. What was their conduct? The Israelites had demanded an explanation after they had gathered in response to receiving fragments of a woman's body. That would lead to questions, wouldn't it? What was that all about? The Levite had cut up the woman because she had been gang-raped and left for dead at his doorstep. Why did this happen? The woman had been, had been uh, uh, brutalized because the man had given her to the men of Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. Why did he do that? The man had given his concubine to the men of Gibeah because his host felt obligated to protect him. Before that, the Levite's host felt obligated to protect the man because he found him in the open square of Gibeah. He was going to spend the night there. Why was he there? The Levite was in Gibeah of Benjamin to spend the night because he was on a journey and could not make it home by nightfall. What was the journey about? The Levite was on a journey to his father-in-law's house because he had gone to get his concubine. Why did he have to get his concubine from his father-in-law? Because she had left him. Why had she left him? She left him and returned to his father's house because she was angry with him. Why was she angry with him? Because everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes, including her husband which was not right, and she suffered for it. So yes, we're going to work forward through the story more slowly, in greater detail, of course. The three chapters, interestingly, that make up this story, Pastor Steve talked about the chapter divisions in a, at the 10 o'clock um, uh, hour. Um, and here we have these, it's, it doesn't often happen, like Pastor Steve was talking about. Um, these chapters happen to divide perfectly into the themes that need to be uh, addressed. Um, the overall theme of this chapter, chapter 19, is the guilt of Benjamin. And then chapter 20 is about the destruction of Benjamin. Really, Israel as a whole, but it focuses on Benjamin to tell the story. Chapter 21 is about the sorrow for Benjamin when Israel looks and sees what they have done to their brothers. So now, the beginning of the story. Judges 19, verses 1 and 2. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Refusing to acknowledge Yahweh as their king, as we see in the no king refrain here, leaves Israel with no theological reason 
for not sinking to the moral and ethical level of the Canaanites, both at the personal, the tribal, and the national levels. The decreed will of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob revealed in Scripture provides the foundation and the basis for morality and ethics. Without God, a society cannot sustain a moral and ethical culture. We're seeing, as we get to the end of this book, the canonization of Israel's worship. We saw it with Micah's. Uh, uh, account earlier uh, before this. So this canonization uh, uh, of the Israelite behavior and thinking without God, people quickly stop acting like godly people. It's very apparent in these accounts. And as we shall see, the results of this are disastrous. As you recall, chapters 17 and 18, as I mentioned, we had a Levite there, again we have a Levite. The Levites are a tribe that is set apart wholly for Yahweh, for the Lord God, and they are to be the spiritual leadership of Israel. So again, we have a Levite as a main character. And this Levite leaves where he was sojourning, he was in the hill country of Ephraim, and travels south to Bethlehem in the territory of Judah. This is the exact reversal of what happened in the previous account with Micah, where we had the young Levite, the Nair. He left Bethlehem of Judah, where he was sojourning, and traveled north to the hill country of Ephraim, to Micah's house. So obviously, we're we're being drawn to that. We're to make a connection here. It's like, wow, that's just like this, but it's just kind of like flip-flop. Why is that? Well, because it's going to be worse, basically. What's unusual in this present account, though, is the anonymous nature of the main characters. We're never told their names. Now, this is the first and only time in the book of Judges where we have this anonymous story going on. Although in our last account, the Nair, the young Levite who becomes priest to Micah, is not initially named, we do get his name at the end of the account. And, and last week, being pressed for time, I didn't really have time to get into it, but um, in chapter 18, verse 30, we are told he is Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses. So he was named. Why is this anonymity in this account? What, we, what are we to make of it? Well, I think there's, there's two uh, there's a twofold significance here to the namelessness of these principal characters. First, their anonymity represents the no king refrain as a universal way of life in all of Israel at this time. Remember, in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the Levite in this story represents every Levite. The concubine represents every woman. The father-in-law represents every host. The old man sojourning in Bethlehem is every outsider in a Benjamite town. This is a key concept in grasping the theological message in this account. Because everyone did as he saw fit. Every host then was capable of committing the atrocities that the Benjamites committed. Every guest could be mistreated and attacked, and every woman was a potential victim 
of the horrible acts visited upon this concubine. Rape, murder, dismemberment. Ironically, just as the Levite would dismember his concubine, in, verse, in chapter 20, verse 11, we see that the nation would gather, quote, as one man, end quote, to dismember itself. What's happening, what happens to this concubine is a picture of, of Israel tearing itself apart. Now, as I often say, because we see these metaphorical and symbolic things in Scripture does not take away from their historicity. It, means it doesn't mean that these things never happen. This is how God is so marvelous in his work, is that there's events that happen in human history that are used very powerfully in God's word to give us lessons, to teach us about God, to teach us about our life, and to lead us to salvation through God the Son. Going back to uh, Dr. Block in his commentary on uh, Judges, he says, anonymity is a deliberate literary device adopted to reflect the universality of Israel's canonization, canonization. So at the same time, we realize this universality of wretchedness. We must also realize this universal agency of divine providence in our lives. Our Lord, speaking um, and recorded in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 30, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." The Lord God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence protects us from ourselves. Even the reprobate are blessed by the common grace of divine providence, by which each of us live out fully the days of our lives that the Lord has allotted to to each of us. The second significance of this namelessness in this account represent the dehumanization of the individual in a canonized or paganized world. Think about it. To have a name is to be somebody. You have an identity. And since names are given and used by others, to have a name is to have significance within the community. It's significant to us, and even more so to this ancient Israelite culture. Naming was a very powerful thing. You've undoubtedly noticed how the people we encounter in the Jewish scriptures often have names that are very meaningful and often point towards who? Towards the Lord God. The, 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 the name, the, the covenantal name Yahweh is incorporated often in their names, or at least El, the, the basic um, uh, word, universal word for God with the big G. This anonymity makes one person really, I I would say, just a replication of another, removing both identity and significance. So the nameless woman in this account is a reminder of what happens to anonymous victims of crime committed by anonymous perpetrators of crimes. And really, there can be no justice in a world that has no identity. In 1961, 
There was this man by the name of Adolf Eichmann. He was arrested by the Israeli authorities in South America. And he was taken back to Israel to stand trial for war crimes. He was the man that was responsible for figuring out how the death camp system would work. And he set it up. He was an extraordinary bureaucrat. He stood trial for his crimes in Israel. And there was this philosopher at the time who was very well known, a secular Jewish lady by the name of Hannah Arndt. She covered the trial for the Jerusalem Post, and she wrote articles about it. Later, she wrote a a very interesting book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, where she talked about his uh, trial and and the crimes uh, that were committed. Uh, Arndt was was very well known for her, her work, philosophical works, in the area of totalitarianism and evil. Um, and she's a very, very, was a very, very deep, you know, thinker and, and really had some, some uh, very astounding uh, insights into a secular examination of evil. She came to the conclusion that this idea that sounds so grandiose, I, I guess, for lack of a better ter- term, of crimes against humanity Really did, really did a disservice to the victims because the victims are unnamed. You just have, how do we understand crimes against humanity? We, we cannot. And Eichmann was executed for his crimes, as others were, but there were many who did not receive really very long sentences on the whole for crimes against humanity because they were not charged with the death, the horrible death and murder of an individual person. Just this kind of amorphous idea of humanity. Well, something to think about. She's talking about identity. If you take away the victim's identity, it's very difficult to hold the perpetrator properly guilty for this. Yet every person, every victim, every perpetrator is known by God. God knows each person intimately, whether a believer in Christ or a disbeliever. That God knows each person intimately is what is meant when it is said, God knows the heart. Which some people say, like, well, that's a good thing. Well, no, friends, it is not. It is not to our benefit that God knows our hearts. And think about it. And if it doesn't seriously shake you up, then you might be fooling yourself about what your own heart is like. Many misuse this idea. I've had, I've had very in-depth discussions with others about this, about them thinking that it's kind of a universal salvation supposedly based on good intentions. intentions. Well, you know, my relatives, know they don't believe in Jesus. They don't even really believe in God, but they're good people. They want to be good people. And you know what? God will see their hearts. Brother, that, that's it right there, that God will see their hearts. God sees my heart and your heart, and that kind of, you know, should make us uh, tremble and should make us rethink this. Luke records in chapter 16, verse 15, the Lord Jesus talking, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination to, in the sight of God. 
God knowing these, the hearts of these men was not a good thing. The Lord, speaking to the Pharisees here, who Luke described as lovers of money, told them that they might fool people into thinking they were righteous, but they did not fool God. God knows our hearts, and that is why God the Son had to come in the flesh, be crucified for our sins, and he rise again, because we need a perfect, righteous Savior. We are not saved by the law. The law cannot save us. Even though it is given to us to obey and to live lives that are good in the, in the sense that we can enjoy them to our fullest and, and live in peace with our fellows on this planet. But without the Savior, we're lost due to our wicked hearts because God knows our hearts. One of the reasons why this passage, this account is so difficult for me because I think of, of the unidentified victims that I dealt with as a police officer. I think specifically about a poor young woman I found in a field one night. Dumped there like a bag of garbage. We never learned her name. We never caught her murderers. She was probably a prostitute. So we called them body dumps because the killers, the murderers, treated human beings like garbage. God knows who these anonymous victims are and the ones that commit the murders. God knows that. It made me think of a great fellow that I knew when I was a young patrol officer. He managed a pizza shop where we would stop occasionally. Nice guy. Loved to talk to him. Armed robbery was committed in this little pizza shop one night. He gave them all the money that he had, complied with all their demands, and as they ran out the door, they turned and shotgunned him to death. We never caught the killer. We knew who the killer was. People had told us, but we couldn't prove it. I am thankful when I think of these poor and fortunate victims, that there is perfect justice at the bar of God. If we do not obtain it in this life, if we think that we have been done in injustice, if we know others who have been done in injustice, and brothers and sisters, we cannot get through this life without seeing injustice. That's just the nature of this world. But God will set everything right. Justice will be served It will be served in the case of this poor young woman we read about in Judges. And it will be served for everyone who's victimized. So the writer, through this anonymity, paints really a sinister world of alienation, denigration, and deconstruction of the social order. I think it's very much like what we're experiencing now. This brings me to a second point, point number two, and we really need to understand this one. Our natural identity is amongst the lawless in Scripture. Our natural identity is among the lawless in Scripture. We must take care that we do not read Scripture with a hypocritical eye. 
God's revealed word speaks to us about us. In our natural state, apart from Christ, without Christ, we are the wicked, the reprobate, the lost in the Bible. It's only by the election of the Father to salvation by the Son, brought by the Spirit, that we are transformed from our natural state of lawlessness and adopted as heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes this in his second letter that we have to the Corinthians, in chapter 15, excuse me, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Of our own accord, we are no better than the worst characters in scriptures. As our Lord Jesus taught, again, going, going to the Gospel of Luke, as Luke rec- records, um, the Lord is speaking to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. We are not to be like the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Rather, be like the tax collector in this parable who would not even, could not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And our Lord said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We must take care not to lose sight of our own sinfulness, while at the same time enjoying the marvelousness of the Lord's salvation. So the two have to, are, are, are part of our experience. We are sinners before we are saved, and we must not forget where the Lord took us from and brought us to. And in times of troubles, such as Israel experienced during this entire period of the judges, we are to look to the outcome of our trials. And in this hope that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can remain steadfast no matter what, no matter what crazy things are going to happen next in the world. It does not impact us in our relationship with Christ and what Christ has done. James wrote to the church in chapter 5, verse 11 of his letter, James 5, 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is, is compassionate and merciful. Remember, blessed can be interpreted, it can be translated as happy. We're, we're given this gift, that we can, that, that, and, and it is the power of God who, who gives us the steadfastness. We just need to recognize it and make use of it, and we will be blessed, we will be happy in this, no matter what. And think of the time when James wrote this. The church in Jerusalem was undergoing immense persecution by fellow Jews after the time of Jesus' ascension and the church exploding in Jerusalem. James himself is murdered by fellow Jews. He's thrown off the roof of the temple. That doesn't kill him. 
No, so some guy takes a, a cudgel used to bake bread with and beats him to death with that. It's not quite as bad for us here yet. So let's keep, let's keep, our, let's keep our, uh, everything in perspective. As verse 1 says in Judges 19, In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem. So following the introductory no king refrain, the narrator introduces the main characters, the Levite and his concubine, both anonymous. All we know of the woman, all we ever learn of her, is that she's now a concubine to the Levite. So what exactly is a concubine. A term's rarely used today, at least in our culture, apart from maybe a disparaging reference to a woman who's in an, in, in an illicit relationship. But the ancient meaning refers to a completely, completely legitimate marriage relationship. We have to understand that. It's not that this was, you know, a lady of the night or anything uh, of that nature. A concubine was essentially a second class wife. Not a second wife, a second class wife. A man could marry a second wife and give her full wife status. This was the status that was accepted upon a woman's entrance into the marriage. Usually her father and the man who wants to take her as a, as a wife or a concubine enter into um, this agreement. And the father would know that his daughter is going into the, the marriage as a concubine. Now, why in the world would this happen? Well, often it was because the family lacked a, a marriage dowry for the, the young woman. Um, they could not give the, the, the groom-to-be what would be normal. So she doesn't get the full wife status, which means... This is all about inheritance and, and, and possessions. It means she has a reduced inheritance. It means her children, the children of the offspring, do not have the same inheritance rights as do the children of a wife, a full wife. They do get an inheritance, but it's, it's, it's not the same. So there's an assumption of a lower status to a concubine. But it is not an illegitimate relationship. It's not one that a woman would not dare show her face in public because she's a kept woman or something of that nature. Um, Levites, the Levite men, had very strict requirements when it came to their marriage. The, the Levitical law, which we read in Leviticus 21.7, states that they are not to marry any woman who's been a prostitute, no divorcee, they may not marry a woman who's been married before, and no defiled woman. So there's a, there's a possibility that this woman may not have qualified for wife status. And it kind of points to the fact that this Levite simply wanted her for carnal reasons. And this may explain if she wasn't you know, up to the standards required by Levitical law for his wife, he was, he was in no hurry to bring her home in verse 2. She went off and he didn't go after her for four months, which is really kind of unusual. So she leaves her husband and she returns to her father's home. 
And we read in verse 2, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. This is the, the uh, English Standard Version. The reason she left her husband, though, is problematic. The surface meaning of this Hebrew phrase, which is translated um, in the ESV as unfaithful, means she played the part of a prostitute or, or a harlot. However, the, the things aren't as clear as they may seem from, from that phrase. This idea of unfaithfulness. You know, what we, we all know what we think of when we, when we hear that a person was unfaithful to their spouse. Well, it's a little bit more complicated here, and I'll explain why. It's just I, that, and the reason I want to take a, a time and a little bit of effort to do this is because I think that there, there are some cases and some commentaries, mainly older ones, that um, really paint a poor picture of this woman and kind of blame her. Well, she, she was, you know, she was a prostitute. And so what difference does it make that all these men had her, you know, in, um, in, in Gibeah? And the victim ends up getting blamed unless we understand this. Understand exactly what it's saying, and I think that's why this is important. We have to understand the amount of shame connected to the sorts of act as far as being unfaithful. If she engaged in adultery in any way, shape, or form, in this culture, the ancient Israelite culture, the amount of shame connected to such an act is simply staggering to us. We would not be able to conceive of such a shame. Shame to the point where a father would almost die if his daughter did such a thing. So running home to daddy hardly seems plausible, knowing the cultural context here. So we get some light into this difficulty by looking at ancient Bible translations. The Septuagint, which translates this into the Greek, translates this phrase as she was angry with him. She went home to dad because she was angry with her husband. The Targum, which is the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, translates it as she despised him. She went home to her father because she despised her husband. And the old Latin translation, which was the first Bible of the Western church translated out of the original language, goes along with this rendering that the Septuagint and the Targum have. So there's something here going on that's, that's, that's very interesting. Well, if you, if you dig into it, and we're not going to go very deep into this because it's, it's very complicated linguistically. And um, I would quickly exhaust my knowledge and bore you to tears if I tried to explain it all. But the, the, the main thing is that the, the, the root words here could easily suffer a, a scribal error, which changes their meaning. The, as you know, Hebrew, ancient Hebrew is a Consonantal language, it's just consonants. And then later, vowel points were added by the scribes. Well, a word that changes this being unfaithful to she was angry with them, all it would require is the addition or loss of a single dot below one of the consonants, a vowel point, and it would change the whole thing. But <clears throat> I'm not saying that's the answer. There's, there's a middle way, which I... I I prefer, which I think is better. 
um, uh, because we don't know if, if there was a scribal error. That's just, scholars are just saying, well, this is, could, could account for it. Why is it so different? Well, look, look at these root words. This, this could do it. Yes, that's, that's true. But, but there's a middle path, I think, in understanding what is being communicated here. If the concubine was, in fact, angered by her situation as a second-tier wife, she gets home with her husband, and things are, things are not good. It's like he is just treating her horribly. And it doesn't say that, but she, she has a reason to leave. So we're assuming this. I think it's easy to assume this. I think it's proper. Maybe she's being mistreated as nothing more, more than an object for the Levite's physical needs. And she leaves him and returns to her father. The fact that she left him would have been considered unfaithfulness, especially to a Levite. The Levites had status in the society. This would be potentially one that people in general, and you know how people talk, would say she played the, she's playing the harlot. She's just prost- she's a prostitute. She, just, she came, she lived with him for, for a bit, and she went home to dad. So we don't have to worry about a scribal error with this, but we can understand conceptually in the culture how both things, how she could have not engaged in any adultery whatsoever. She was just fed up and she headed home. And then people that talk are calling her bad names because of that. This brings us to the third and last point I want to make. Point number three. Societal norms reflect sin more often than they reflect God's word. God's law, I should say. Let me do that again. Societal norms reflect sin more often than God's law. An important point to understand, which I think is missed by many, is the Bible does not idealize human behavior in its narrative accounts. In other words, what we read in the Bible doesn't mean that it's right. Well, this is what this advice from Job's friends has got to be good. It's in the Bible, right? Or look what the the judges were heroes, like Samson's a hero. Gideon's a hero. Everything they did had to be good. And we read the accounts slowly and we look at it, it's like, no. This is, this is not good. It's not idealized behavior. God's word addresses us as we really are, right? With all the warts and flaws and whatever. It is not mythology. It is not legendary literature. It's true stuff. People aren't depicted as better than they are. So what became normal in Israelite society at the time of Judges violated many of the foundational laws Yahweh had given them. Likewise, what is viewed now by many as normal in our society is a violation of the law of God also. Even people who are outraged over the current transgender agenda being pushed by media and entertainment, which, you know, please keep in mind, brothers and sisters, now includes previously, you know, not that many years ago, family-safe entertainment, like Major League Baseball in Disney has taken, has taken up the, the torch for the transgender agenda. And if the past is any indicator, many people in our country will be soon dulled. Their senses will be dulled to how wrong this is. Right now, secular society seems to be kind of outraged by it. But think about how quickly secular society accepted homosexual marriage. That used to outrage people, and very quickly they got over it. 
And I think the same thing may happen with the transgender agenda, just like with the LGBTQ plus agenda, which is reshaping our language. People don't like it, but people don't want to you know, be in conflict. They go along with it you know, for, for whatever reason. So when we remove God's laws, our baseline to human law, then our human laws no longer have a perfect standard by which they are set, by which our laws can be judged. Then human sinfulness becomes the standard, not a perfect law. And sin is never satisfied, is it? Sin will not put up with restrictive boundaries. Proverbs 27.20 says, Hell and destruction are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. The more you sin, the more you're going to want to sin. Wickedness will increase, and it will eventually be legitimized. by. And history has proven this. Every evil society has legitimatized its own evil by codifying evil acts, not as only legal, but eventually requiring the evil acts to be performed by everyone. I was listening to a podcast from Voice of the Martyrs last week, and I was just blown away by this. There was this, there was this um, uh, brother on there being interviewed, and he has a ministry. He's based in South Korea, and his ministry is to North Korea. And you've heard in the past how they would um, uh, inflate helium balloons and have Bible verses tied to them and float them over. Well, he got picked up by the police for transporting Bible verses into communist North Korea. He was picked up in a a country which is basically like a Western democracy, South Korea, uh, which is supposedly a free nation. He was picked up by Interpol agents. These are international police agents. Who was behind this investigation, he didn't say. But it's like, wow, this is just not, you know, COPD, um, uh, picking him up. This is Interpol, you know, who takes orders from Brussels, Belgium, picking him up. They brought him in for interrogation three days in a row for 12 hours a day. He was interrogated. They said they had a stack of information on him over a foot high, photographs of everything he did, receipts, copies of receipts for everything he had done for years in his ministry to communist North Korea. He went home, and he said he was in the shower, and he just banged his head against the tile in that shower like, and asked, Lord, what is going on? I'm in a free nation, and I'm, they're trying to imprison me for sending your word to those held captive in a horrible communist dictatorship. This is what we are seeing occurring in our world today. Human government does not override God's law. Governments themselves are answerable to God for breaking his law. Governments which break God's law with uprised fists 
as we are seeing now. This are, these are not, you know, unintentional sins like the book of Leviticus talks about, you know, where an offer, a sacrifice will be made if we've sinned unintentionally, you know, and we beg forgiveness. We didn't mean to do this. No, these people are, are doing it with, as I can't think of anything else but an upraised fist to heaven. But these nations that do this will suffer judgment, God's judgment within history. By that I mean they will not have to wait for judgment day to be judged. We see this in God's word. We see this throughout history. And the judgment upon evil nations is harsh and it's unyielding unless there's a turning back to God. Which I think is possible because with the Lord all things are possible, right? If it, was just, if it was just up to us, like, we have got to convert this nation. Otherwise, we're doomed. It would be like, well, just, let's just dig a bunker because we're not going to be able to do it. But God can do it. The Holy Spirit can do it and act through us to do it. So we should never feel like the task is beyond us. It is beyond us. But God is with us as we are with God. The Lord Jesus, before his crucifixion, prayed to the Father in what we now call his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 19 of that marvelous prayer. And our Lord said to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Beloved, as our Lord says, we are in the world, but not of the world. The ways of the world are not to be our ways. We live now in this place and in this time by the will of the Father in order to do his will. We who have been sanctified in the truth by the Lord Jesus must not depart ever from this truth. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the message you have for us. Father, as difficult as the messages can be, may we profit from them. May it touch our hearts. May it stir our souls. May it be written on our hearts and in our minds that we may meditate on it, Father. Father, grant us obedience through the Spirit that we may do as you will, Father, that we may be witnesses in word and in action of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this time that we've been able to worship you. Father, bless us as we go about our day and hopefully, if you will, come back this evening to hear your word preached again. Father, We thank you, we glorify you, we honor you in everything we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.